I feel like I have a limited reserve of energy. I, I have a threshold. And like once I hit that threshold, I'm done for the day. It's seasonal for me. It's usually right when we get home from tour that I'm just like, I am so unproductive. And I'm disheveled. I don't shower. I don't shave. I don't clean anything. Like the dishes pile up, the laundry piles up. I'm just like doing all these. And it takes me like weeks to get on my feet again. And then we leave. And then we go on tour again. Mm. Such is the life. But I feel like whenever I get into the zone, one of the reasons that I don't want to get out of it is because I'm like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I finally like got here. Mm. Yeah. You were really good at that. And if I like get pulled out of it, I don't know when the next time is going to be. I might have a whole week or two of, I got nothing to give anymore. So I think once I'm there, I want to stay there. Mm. Yep. Because I know it's rare. It's this idea of inertia. Getting that mm -hmm. object going is where all the work is. Once it's going, it's going. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I'm Sawyer Witted. And I'm Scott Tress. Welcome to The Stories That Make Us. This podcast uses the tool of the Enneagram to explore the beauty and complexity of humanity through stories, both real and fictional. Some episodes, we interview live guests about their stories through the lens of their types. Other episodes, we'll dissect fictional characters to discover their types and learn more about ourselves in the process. Because the reality is, it can be hard to see ourselves accurately. The eye can see everything but itself. Thanks for joining us, and let's get to it. Hello, hello. Hey, everyone. Hello, Potosphere. Mm -hmm. And hello, Scott. Hello, Sawyer. It's good to see you. Mm -hmm. I love I love our chats. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. Okay. What book or series do you wish you could live inside of? Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, this one is more normal. I've heard <laughs> this one before. My natural instinct is to go to the series that I enjoy. So there's sure. a couple that I know I don't want to be in. Game okay. of Thrones oh, or no. Song of Ice and Fire? Definitely oh not. No, no. Too much death. Run away. Lord of the Rings even, it's like, it sounds great, but also a lot of death. This is like medieval time. No one actually enjoyed themselves back then except mm. for the kings. I'm I'm probably not going to be the king, so it's not really that worth it. Don't, so, under, don't undersell yourself. <laughs> thank you. You can be anything you put your mind to, <laughs> sweetie. <laughs> uh, so, so with that, I feel like a, a subtle call out to some... Some podcasts to come. I think Harry Potter might yes. be the best. I mean, it's fun. That's my answer. They're, you know, <laughs> their kids having fun at a school and they get to do magic. I mean, sure, there's an evil wizard trying to kill them all, but that's besides the point. They're having there's fun at school. There's also a lot of death in the last one. Spoiler, yeah, but, but like, <laughs> you just hope you're not one of them. Remus. <laughs> at least he died next to the one he loved. That's true. <laughs> Who also died, though. Yeah, no. <laughs> at anyway. least the one he loved died. Also, Doesn't one of that my... make you feel better? That's true. <laughs> Also, I'm so sorry to those of you who have not who have not finished the Ooh. Harry Potter franchise because oh, that's a huge gosh. spoiler. But what I'm about to yeah, say he is said, a spoiler he said Steamus alert. dies. Spoiler so yes, find Steamus <laughs> next to his slover. <laughs> what? <laughs> but this is a big spoiler alert. I think one of the uh -oh. biggest disservices in that entire franchise is at the very end when you there's just like an off screen death for Remus and Ninfodora. Mm. No one calls them that. Why did I call them by their it, first names? <laughs> for Lupin and Tonks. <laughs> like, it's it's such a, um, it's off-screen death. I, and then you just kind of see them dead in the hallway. Well, yeah. And it's like, what? They died? You know? The final just, movie, the final scene of the final movie, I think, personally, uh -huh. I think was done poorly. Yeah. There was no celebr. There's no, like, 
well, many of the deaths are off screen, some of which right. are, are actually depicted in the book. Mm. And then also, Harry Potter kills Voldemort, who's been the villain this entire time, and he like gets a couple head nods from people. And that's oh, yeah. the end. There's no like, in the books, there's cheering. There's people are celebrating. Ha- it's like, right. everyone's like, oh yeah, he's dead. Cool. I got right. you. Good work. Right, right. Pound it, man. It's like, yeah. no, what are we doing here? <laughs> Anyways, yeah, very good. much an aside. Doesn't have to do with the Enneagram. There's so much an aside. But that's okay. Because this episode, we get into a lot of asides as well. <laughs> this episode is so lovely that we actually broke it up into two separate episodes. And by lovely, I mean long. But fun. So fun. We had so much to talk about with these guests. On this week's episode, we have Isaac Horn and Lincoln Mick on the podcast. They are the founders and principal singers and songwriters in the Nashville-based indie folk band, The Arcadian Wild. Over the past few years, The Arcadian Wild have grown their following and amassed over 85 million streams for their songs. They are passionate about the Enneagram, and they will be releasing new music this summer. Scott and I are excited to offer this platform as a place where musicians, influencers, low-key celebrities can be real people with real stories. Mm. You know, it's easy for us to think of people on stage as so detached from us and not the same as us, you know, not the same in the sense that they're just fellow humans. So I think it's important to remember that we have similar stories and we have so many things in common with each other. This helps us build compassion. It's also why I absolutely love the Enneagram. So before we jump in, Isaac is a type nine and Lincoln is a type one. So I just want to give a quick overview of type nines and type ones core motivations. Scott, tell us the core motivations of type nine. So for the type nine, we've got the core fear, which is a fear of being in conflict, tension or discord internally or with others, feeling shut out or overlooked and losing connection with others. Their core desire is having inner stability and peace. Their core weakness is sloth. And what that means or what we're getting at there with sloth is that it's an indolent apathy that helps the nine avoid anything conflictual. They merge with others' desires, dreams, goals, because it's easier and creates a false sense of peace for them. They don't show up for themselves because they're too busy merging with others. And lastly is the core longing. As Sawyer loves to say, the secret (laughs) sauce that brings it all together. That's right. And what they long for, what they desire to hear is that your presence matters. Type one, on the other hand, their core fear is being wrong, bad, corruptible, inappropriate, unredeemable, or evil. Core desire is having integrity, being good, virtuous, balanced, accurate, and right. The core weakness is anger. And this is a repressed resentment, a buried anger, if you will, toward the world and everyone in it who are not as they should be. They turn this anger inward at themselves, fueled by their inner critic. Their core longing is you are good and you are good enough. Enjoy the episode. Isaac and Lincoln, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. As we jump in to talk about your guys' stories, I want to give a quick recap about type nines and type ones, which are your types. We talk about the four core motivations of every type, and that's what makes an Enneagram type. And so we'll start with type nines. We often call them the peacemakers, and their core fear is being in conflict, tension, or discord internally or with others, feeling shut out or overlooked, and losing connection with others. As they're running from that core fear, they're running towards their core desire, which is to have inner stability and peace and outer stability and peace. 
All the while, they're tripping over their core weakness, which is sloth. And this is an apathy that helps the nine avoid anything conflictual. They'll merge with others' desires, dreams, goals, and wants because it's easier and creates a false sense of peace for them. They don't show up for themselves as a result. What they need to save them from this exhausting journey is their core longing. This is like the secret sauce of your type. It's what pulls you out of the trap. And the core longing for type nines is that your presence matters. Hmm. Type one is the reformer. And the fear that they are running from is being bad, being wrong, corruptible, inappropriate, unredeemable, or even evil. While they're running from that fear, they're running towards a core desire, which is to have integrity, to be good, virtuous, balanced, accurate, and right. All the while, they're tripping over their core weakness, which is anger. And this is not like an explosive outward anger necessarily, although that's definitely part of it. Usually, this is more of a repressed resentment. So it's like this buried anger toward the world and everyone in it who mm. aren't as they should be. They turn this anger inward at themselves as well, which is fueled by their inner critic. So then the secret sauce, the core longing for type one that saves them from the trap of their type is you are good and you are good enough. Isaac and Lincoln, again, thanks for being here. Lincoln, as a type one, can you tell us how did you first discover that you were a one? So I got a hold of a Richard Rohr book from mm -hmm. a friend. Isaac and I both went to a private college here in Nashville called Lipscomb University. And I was actually a theology student there. And this guy was one of my classmates. And he shared this book with me a few years ago. And I feel like most people, when they first encountered the Enneagram, probably had like a healthy dose of skepticism. But I started kind of like flipping through and skimming the first few paragraphs of each chapter. And I know everyone's experience is so different. Sometimes it it takes certain folks, you know, a little bit of time to to kind of mm -hmm. narrow in on on where they land. But within like the first few sentences of that initial description of ones, I was like, oh no, <laughs> someone someone's been reading my journal, and it was really interesting. It was it was kind of all I could think about for weeks and probably months after wow. that sort of initial discovery. It just felt like I, there was an overflow and like an onslaught of emotional and intellectual and spiritual information that was that was just kind of like washing over me in waves. And wow. it's really funny. I did not know before that moment that I was an angry person. <laughs> and then after I discovered that, I was angry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I kind of had this... I think I had just had this like simmering resentment towards this new understanding of reality for a season and then was able to to really grapple with it and unpack it over time. And obviously I, I am still unpacking it and hopefully yeah. will continue to do so until I'm dead. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a very it was like a very penetrating realization, but it's been really helpful and really beautiful and really redemptive for me over the last few years and I've been really thankful. I think it's it's helped me I mean, obviously understand myself better. It's, it's helped my marriage. It's helped my relationship with Isaac and our work together and helped us as we like move forward in our friendship and in our professional work together. So it's, yeah. it's been, it's been amazing and I'm, I'm really thankful. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing how naked it can make you feel when you first discover your type. It's bad it's, news bears, man. It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's like. I feel kind of seen and known and also just mortified. Yeah, it's all those things at once. Isaac, how about for you as a type nine? Yeah, whenever I discovered the Enneagram, I feel like Lincoln probably showed it to me. 
I think that that's true. I had just started dating my wife. Okay. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. And she's very spontaneous and it is drawn to things that are bright and, and shiny and is always looking for something that's adventurous. And so you're yes, better half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Truly <laughs> ridiculous. So whenever I was reading about it and whenever my friends were reading about it and I was trying to identify like, okay, where do I fit here? I was having a hard time and the seven kept, kept popping out at me. Maybe I was seven. And then my friends, the people around me also were like, yeah, yeah, I think I can see that. And I realized, I don't really know exactly when, I guess it probably just was a slow realization as mm. the honeymoon phase trickled out and I became like myself again. I just had realized that, oh no, I'm not a seven like my wife. I was being a nine around my wife by like whatever the energy she was putting out. I was like, yeah, me too. Yep. Let's do that. And then, and then whenever I started like think about like all the other aspects of my life too, I think I just, I really, really resonated with the merging aspect of the nine. Like whenever I got into a situation with other people and they expressed really strong, strong opinions or just desires or plans or whatever, that it was always so much easier for me to just like nod and say, absolutely, that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. So that was the first moment that I was like, okay, maybe I'm a nine. And then the deeper I read, it became more and more obvious that I am a nine and I often look like the people that are close to me and the people that yep. are around me. Sure. Did you go through a phase where you thought you were basically like every type at different times? Maybe not every single type. I've never, ever thought I was an eight. There's just <laughs> not, not even Fair. a little bit. Fair. But there were, yeah, there have definitely been been points where, I mean, really, it's just, it was more not thinking that I was that number, but instead, as I'm like reading about it and also just like meeting all these different types of people, it was just so easy for me to just see things from their perspective. Sure. And yeah, like the way that they would relate when I was reading about the way that one number might respond to a situation instead of being like, oh, that's not me. I'd be like, I could see myself doing that. Like on every single one of them. Yep. Except the eight. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's amazing. So do you do you tend to lean more into your one wing? I'm guessing. Yeah, I think so, especially like in context of my work, for sure. Oh, okay. I think whenever I do allow myself to get angry or not even necessarily allowing myself to to get angry, but whenever it kind of like reaches a boiling point, mm-hmm. I'll kind of like lash out and it and definitely like my like eight wing mm-hmm. shows its talons for sure. sure. Yeah. Um, the fangs come yeah. out. Okay, I, I, I have I have a question for the Enneagram coach. Yeah, um, go for it. So <laughs> wait, you're not allowed to interview me. <laughs> oh no, no, this is happening now. <laughs> okay, okay, so something I've heard recently that I'm I'm still trying to grapple with, and I really I'm really interested on your take is the conversation of the mm-hmm. wing. And as my understanding has evolved, I've been under the impression that it's kind of fluid, and you can oscillate back and forth but i've had a couple people tell me like no it's fixed (laughs) and like you might Mm. you might flip to the other side in like the second half of life Mm. so like once you hit the midlife point like you're gonna switch from that fixed position and then go to the Mm. other side of your number and i think that's an interesting theoretical conversation but i don't know like what is true and like if there's a general consensus so do you have 
thoughts on this? I love that question. I actually really okay. like talking about the wings and the paths. So mm-hmm. the wings, the types to either side of you, and then the paths, your stress point and your security point. Some of the biggest misunderstandings that happen is like you're saying with the wings is people think that you're a two wing three and then that's like mm-hmm. I'm speaking for myself and then that's it like as if mm-hmm. I don't use my one wing at all yeah. as if it's mm-hmm. like a decimal point I'm a 2.4 <laughs> yeah, so I'm right. leaning yeah. it's like no that's not <laughs> right exactly and and then the other thing is like with the paths of like stress is bad and security is good and it's yeah. actually there's no morality <laughs> yeah. there's no good or bad there these are actually four extra parts to your type that affect your type's core motivations in very specific ways. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the wings, if you think of like salt and pepper, so Lincoln, you as a one, if you think of your main type as like a nice steak, and then... I like where (laughs) this is going. (laughs) Yeah. And then your two is a little bit of pepper and your nine is a little bit of salt, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Because everyone knows that nines are salty. I'm just kidding. It's true. (laughs) Twos are... Anyway, so if you oversalt a meal and don't use enough pepper that tends to not taste very good, right? Mm. If you over pepper a meal and don't use much salt, then it's not going to bring out the flavors that that you're wanting and craving in that meal or in that steak rather. So balance, I think that's the big thing. That's the big word with like, what do we want to achieve with the Enneagram? What does the Enneagram Mm. help us with? It helps us with balance. It helps Mm. us learn how to live as balanced individuals. And so part of that is learning to use both of your wings. And I would go even further and say learning to recognize both of your wings because they are there. There's just a good chance that one of them's a lot more repressed than the other. Mm-hmm. And so like Isaac as a nine, like your eight wing is just as much a part of you as mm-hmm. your one wing is. But I bet it shows itself very, very differently because my guess is that it's probably more repressed than your one wing, which is probably I'm, I'm just gathering that from you saying you didn't relate to the eights. And so I like for myself, I learned that was true of me. Like I've always said, like I was a two with a really heavy three wing. And I I said it to you before we even started recording this podcast. Mm -hmm. And that's because my three wing is super accessible and I know it very well. Mm. But my one wing is actually there. It's just been a lot more sneaky and and kind of more repressed in my life. Mm. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that perspective. I'm going to tell everyone else. It's a really good analogy. And (laughs) yeah, they're all wrong. And you were right. And which is my main agenda. Um, <laughs> that's all that really matters. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And and that's kind of been my own experience is kind of like reinforced that yeah. hypothesis, because mm-hmm. even looking at the two of us, like I like speaking for myself, like I know that I have strong impulses to serve other people and make them feel good and like that's, I think that is like leaning towards to, I can get like transactional with my relationships, which is like also a two thing. And I also have moments where I want to like, like keep the peace or make peace. And I want to try and find a way forward that like suits everyone best and, mm-hmm. and sort of like find the middle path. And like, that's a very nine thing. And, and sometimes I just feel worn out and I don't want to deal mm-hmm. with conflict. So I feel like I've found myself existing on either side of my home base. And like, I watch Isaac be very meticulous about just getting music right and like finding, not correct, mm. but like finding the one special thing that he wants to say or communicate and the right way to say it. Um, and that feels like a very healthy one move. Mm. And I've also seen him get like contentious and he's got, <laughs> he gets contentious with me and yeah. 99% of the time I deserve it. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I've watched him 
come out of himself in really powerful and beautiful ways when it's very needed. Mm. And and so, yeah, that's been my understanding. Thank yeah. you for yeah. weighing in. I of course, you're welcome. That. Yeah, <laughs> I think the little piece I'm going to leave with you guys before we move on is just to remember that always, 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 your wings are serving your main type. Mm-hmm. They're serving your main type of motivations. So your core fear, your core desire, your core weakness, your core longing, that stays fixed. That's something that actually develops in childhood and then stays fixed all of your life. It partially develops in childhood and partially just comes forth in childhood Mm -hmm. because I think it's both and with nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. I tend to lean a little bit more onto the nature aspect of it. I think you're just, you're born your type, but nurturing definitely has a lot to do with how your type takes shape and how Mm -hmm. it takes form. But yeah, those wings are there to serve you and to help you. And that's why I really love the Enneagram too, because it is it is this dynamic tool. There's a lot of movement within it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about stories from childhood and, and the type emerging in childhood, I'm curious for you guys, and, and maybe Isaac, you can answer first. What is a memory that you have from your childhood that you can look back and and now with your with your knowledge of the Enneagram and the knowledge that you're a type nine, you can look back on that memory and be like, oh, wow, that kid was a type nine. Hmm. I know what Lincoln's is. Um, Yeah, okay. I'm not sure if this is a really specific memory, but Uh more of a trend whenever I was a kid. Nobody ever knew where I was. Hmm. Or they would, I would be in a room and then they'd say, hey, Isaac. And they'd be like, where did Isaac go? (laughs) He's gone. Hmm. And I think that I, I had this habit of always getting overwhelmed Whenever rooms got crowded, whether it was lots of people or just kind of like more like an emotional crowded feeling and would just leave. I would just escape to my room or run down to the basement. And then as I like got older, I would just get in my car and just drive around. So I'm the oldest of three. Mm-hmm. And my younger brother and my younger sister, when they were kids, they fought all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's great because now... They're like best buds. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. Mm. But when they were kids, they were on top of each other all the time. Just car rides were the worst. And I was like simultaneously like right in between them, like always trying to make it to where they weren't fighting. Yeah. And also at the same time, completely removed. Like I, it would be 50-50 if in the car when they start started fighting if I was going to like plant myself in the seat in between them, or if I was just going to jump to the back row and put my Walkman on and just like old fashioned sentence you just said. Yes. And like put my switch foot CD on and see if I could make it not skip. And, (laughs) and so it could have been either way. That was definitely like whenever I was a kid, just that habit of anytime there was like some sort of conflict between my siblings or any time like it was it was like all right time for a serious family conversation or whatever or anytime it just got loud like if it was just i mean just as simple as like there's just lots mm-hmm. of noise i would bolt i'd go to my room and turn some music on mm. my mom never she never knew who i was <laughs> oh he's he just left what is that about being a nine well you know there's there's the obvious just trying to avoid conflict and but I think also I never had the confidence to like engage when my siblings would start to like go at each other that like anything that I was going to do was actually going to help. And, mm. and also, I don't know. I think that there's even just like physical, like just things getting loud, 
Like when, yep. when the TV was on and there were like eight conversations happening at this like big family gathering. I was just like, I can't, I was just overwhelmed by like, mm. okay, where do I insert myself in this situation? Like, do I pay attention to the TV that my grandpa's watching and like sit next to him and I, like talk to him about the baseball game? Or do I like go over here and talk to my aunt and my cousins or whatever? Or do I go separate my siblings? I was constantly overloaded whenever things were, when things got crowded and loud. And I think that goes to what you were saying about like, there was this core desire to like, not only find some sort of like inner sense of peace, but also like an outward sense of peace. Yep. Whenever I opened my eyes and there was, I saw chaos in front of me, I was like, I have to get out of here. I have to, I have to leave mm -hmm. and find a quiet place. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I have like outward peace and also I can start to breathe a little bit and like listen to myself and have some type of inner peace. But really what I was doing was just like closing my eyes again, you know, and mm. like turning around and running away. Right. Not actually fixing the, the sure. problem. Sure. Or even it's like a temporary fix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing too. Like when I left for college and was no longer at home, that's whenever my siblings started to get along. And they were like, it's all your fault. You oh. wouldn't let us fight it out, you know? <laughs> Which is just an interesting, that's just an interesting dynamic. Yeah. But. <laughs> and I'm sure as a nine, that hurt a lot to hear. Yeah, I was like, oh man, I was like, really trying. I was like, really that trying. Is my, my core desire is to do that. And you're saying I was the, I was the problem. Right, yeah. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing, man. Yeah. Yeah. Lincoln, same question to you. Yeah, I actually have a few that come to mind. I can try and share them all great in a succinct fashion. I think the first one, so I'm an only child and I grew up in a pastoral ministry family. So my dad's worked for churches since I was really, really young and before I was born. My mom was a missionary kid and was like born abroad in Nigeria and is like one of six children that were kind of like just dragged around the world, just doing crazy stuff. And so that was like kind of a core piece of my upbringing. So it felt like we were always at church when I was young, which was, which was good. Like it was, it was a great community, like not perfect. It's broken because it's made of broken people. So, you know, you're not going to find a perfect faith community, yeah. mm -hmm. but it was a good community. It was a good extended family. Mm -hmm. And I have this really vivid memory of there was one Sunday evening when we all still did like Sunday night church as like a follow-up to Sunday morning. <laughs> and we were sitting in service and I was sitting with a couple of my friends. We were really young, like five or six probably. And the two guys that I was hanging out with were two really sweet boys. They were, they were good kids, but they were a bit troublesome. Yeah. And just got into mischief from time to time. And I had never seen anyone like flip the bird before. And they like started kind of like playing this game that they just decided to make up on the spot of trying to give people the finger secretly, covertly while yeah, service sure. was happening and try to not be seen. And I didn't know what it meant. And I don't even know if they totally know what it meant. I think they just knew it was bad. Bad, yeah. And they weren't supposed to do it. And I, I had zero context for it. I just thought it was like a funny thing. And I was like, sure. okay, yeah, sure. And so, like, yeah. we do this for like an hour. And their grandmother comes up to my mom after <laughs> church. And she is like 
super, super gracious about it. She's very chill and very discreet. And she said, hey, I saw that Lincoln was sitting with James and Jared and they were doing something not very nice. (laughs) And I just wanted you to know about it. And I wanted you to have the chance to talk to him about it yourself if you Mm. felt that that was something you needed to do. And she was like, thank you. I will do that. And so on the car ride home, she said, she was like, yeah, so Lincoln, how was tonight? Were you sitting with your buds? And I was like, yeah, it was cool. And she <laughs> and she like started this like very tactful inquiry yep. into our activities for the evening. And like eventually like got to, you know, the point where she says, okay, so this thing that you were doing, this is what it means. And it's actually not very nice. And we need to not do this again. And I was horrified that I had done this thing unknowingly that was like offensive and could hurt someone's feelings. Mm. And after we got home, I just like crawled up in my mom's lap and wept for Mm -hmm. like a long time because I had like, I had done something like morally corrupt unintentionally, but it was still wrong and it really affected me in like a deep way. Mm. Another one that's very brief in third grade when we all started learning cursive which i use all the time now <laughs> <laughs> i actually do write in cursive all the time so are you serious mad respect whoa i do no respect that is something with with what i'm about to say wow. to you i wish i still did also as we were like learning our letters i was like so meticulous about getting it just right that in the exercises where we just had to replicate the same letter over and over again or do the same word yep. like 10 times. I was so slow doing it that everyone else would finish in the allotted time and I still had stuff to do. And I would have to do my cursive exercises during recess. Like I would sit wow. under a tree while like all of my friends were playing. And the funny thing is I wasn't even mad about it. Like I would, I didn't feel like dejected. I was like, I'm, this is going to be the best. Like I took such satisfaction. I was like, you losers, like you, you just scribbled and scratched on your stupid papers and mine is going to be a masterpiece. The joke is on you, but yeah, there's a dimension of my psyche, like in my adult life where there are moments where I feel like I'm still sitting under that tree, like Mm -hmm. working on myself. And I see everyone else like off having fun. And I feel like I'm stuck doing work that like no one else has to do or wants to take the time to do. Mm. But I'm just going to sit here and suffer it out. And it's going to make me like a more righteous, Mm -hmm. wholesome person, which is like a false story. But it's like the story that I get trapped in. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's your lens. Yeah. Yeah. And then last thing. This is like later in adolescence that I I think of often was I was, I ran cross country and track in high school and I loved that. I loved, I loved getting out and moving and like pushing myself physically. And I loved my team. My teammates were amazing and it was just like a great way to spend four years. And looking back, I'm really fascinated by it because on one hand, I had this desire to perform at a high level, but then I also kind of had this competing desire for it to appear really easy from the outside Mm. and to not like to not look like I'm working hard and to never like push myself to a point where I appear like 
undignified, which like those are like competing agendas. If you want to throw it all out on the field and reach the highest level possible, you got to give it everything and you need to be willing to face the possibility of throwing up as you cross the finish line. And I had teammates yeah. that would do that and they would, you mm-hmm. know, they would run faster than me. Mm-hmm. And I never allowed myself to get to that point <laughs> because it was like, I've heard Brene Brown talk about the duck on the water thing, like ducks moving gently across the surface of a pond and they look like very serene, but like underneath the water, their little feet are just like flapping furiously. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's maybe part of the Enneagram one complex is like, yeah. I just want to look, I just want to look like it's a smooth ride all the time, but like underneath it's like, Oh, here we go. Here we go. We're going to, yeah. we're not going to sink. We're not going to sink. We're not going to sink. Keep moving forward. Yeah. And I, I think I sabotaged certain aspects of my cross country days mm-hmm. inadvertently, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. that makes yeah. a lot of sense. <laughs> and I think something you're speaking to there as well, at least just was like coming up for me as I'm thinking about it. And that last story, particularly the each Enneagram type has a main defense mechanism and the defense mechanism for ones is reaction formation. Mm-hmm. And so when there's a genuine, true, authentic reaction, they may want to have to something whether that be an angry reaction, an envious reaction, or a sad reaction, right? One of those one of those reactions that are deemed, quote unquote, bad, mm-hmm. the one will form a different reaction instead. Whether that's whether that's the opposite reaction, which some people have some ones have reported, like if they're angry, they'll display happiness instead. <laughs> or if it's just like they'll shut down. Mm-hmm. You know, either way, you're still forming a reaction. And I think that speaks a little bit to what you were just saying, because there's this desire to even though there's all this work and all this stuff happening underneath, there's desire to be seen as things are going smoothly yep. mm-hmm. and good. You know, it, I think it all, yeah, I yeah. think it has to, to do with the whole like looking appropriate. Especially in athletics, there's this idea of act like you've been there before. So I think yeah. for ones, that's something that really comes through of I need to act like, you know, this is natural. This is me doing well, doing right. But I'm not going to not going to go outside the bounds of, of those who know what they're doing and are doing it correctly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, when I was listening to the episode you guys did with Bobby on the type one, I know that you had asked him about that and he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't ever do like the equal and opposite reaction in the moment. I could just kind of like shut down a little bit and like mm-hmm. disassociate, which mm-hmm. like I, that's, that totally makes sense. But I, I think I do fall more into the category of kind of like calculated reaction formation, which like when you really break it down is not a reaction. Like it's a choice. It's made really quickly, but it's a choice and it's, Mm -hmm. it's more of like a response and it's not an authentic one. (laughs) And I, and I think the times maybe more so with people, I don't know people like Isaac that have known me for years and years and like understand me and love me even when I'm an idiot can like see right through it. And you know, it's Mm -hmm. not fooling anyone, but like, especially with people that don't know me as well, I think the times when I'm most furious are often the times when I'm most courteous and mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. act most hospitable mm-hmm. because I try to like cover over the rage with this like veneer of warmth. Um, sure. And I've, I've heard that described of like any of Enneagram ones that 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 seething anger that's kind of always bubbling underneath the surface is kind of covered over with this layer of sweetness. So it's often perceived as like a social warmth, but it's not, it's not warm fuzzies. It's actually because I hate what's happening right now. Right. (laughs) Like I'm just feeling that hot about it. So, yeah, (laughs) but it would be bad to show that anger. Yeah. Yeah. Bad. Right. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. Hey, could I add one thing I thought of for the nine? Yeah. I wanted to add this one just because of how weird it is and kind of morbid. And I really just, I just wanted to add it just in case there's somebody else out there. Oh, I love, I, I love, I love whatever <laughs> that does this. Like maybe they won't feel crazy or at the very least, I can just realize that I am crazy. It's just me. And if that's what it is, like that's, that's okay. So excited for whatever it is you're about to say. So because the nines have such a hard time, a lot of times like identifying exactly the way that they feel. And mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm so motivated and influenced and in tune with the way that other people are feeling. A lot of times I just let that come to the surface rather than actually the way that I'm feeling. And ever since I was a kid, I still do this. And now it's kind of turned into kind of a form of therapy. <laughs> like, and I'm wondering if you know where I'm going with this. So yeah, ever since I was a kid, I never cried. I had a really hard time like crying. And it wasn't because I, whenever I felt it coming on, that I would like hold back. But instead, I just, I always took everything with this sort of like even keeled operating at maybe 70%. And if something good happened, it bumped me up to 75. And if something bad happened, it took me down to 65. So it was never these like really massive like reactions to anything. And I think it was just because I was guarding myself from that. I wasn't, ex- like I needed time to process mm. some of the things that I was feeling to actually be like, is that important to me? Or like, am I excited about that? Or am I mm. devastated by that? I don't know. In the moment, I don't know. I'm trying to be like, how How do you think I'm supposed to feel about this? You know, what's my, you know, how am I supposed to respond to this? And so what I would do is I would take these really long showers. Okay, mm. this is where the morbid part comes in. I would take these really, really long showers and I would, while I was in the shower, I would turn the lights off and I would fabricate these horrific events. I would like kill somebody in my family, like kill them off. I wouldn't actually mm-hmm. kill them. I would like kill them off in, in, in some horrible way. And I would like, I would put myself in this scene yeah. and then I would be like, okay, now I can begin to feel something intense. Mm. and and then I, okay, I can cry. I can, like, get this out a little bit, mm. and it wouldn't, I don't know if it was actually, like, helping me unlock any sort of real feeling, but I think it was just, I would get to a point, like, a sort of, like, boiling point where it's like, man, I really need to allow myself to just feel something really intense because mm. I never feel anything really intensely, and mm. so I would kill people in my dreams, or I would, I would kill people in my mind, mm in the shower hmm. and I would weep and then I would come out of the shower and it just looked like I had taken a shower. Like hmm. my face was all wet, you know, so it didn't look like I'd been crying. Hmm. And that was that. And I'd just go about my day hmm. and not change anything. And I still hmm. do that. I, st- I like yeah. still do that almost for fun. Not really for fun, but it's just like, it's therapy. Like I said, like I do it sure. on purpose. Like I don't, yeah. it's not like a surprising like, oh, I guess this is coming on or whatever. It's like, Oh, I have free 45 minutes. I'm going to hop in the shower, get a good fake cry in. Yeah. I'm going to sure. go take a homicidal shower. <laughs> yes. That's Isn't actually that why insane? you're That's actually why your brother and sister don't fight anymore is because you murdered both of them and they can't <laughs> fight. <laughs> so it's really oh. the best possible scenario for everyone involved. <laughs> but you caused peace. I mean, you made peace happen, right? Yeah, right. No more fighting. You're a hero. Isn't that wild though? Yeah, that is wild. I first of all, I don't think you're crazy. 
<laughs> I will sometimes fantasize about my parents' funerals so that I start crying because I need to get a cry out. So there's actually yeah, a very yeah. similar thing there. Mm-hmm. I do it from a very two place of repressing my emotions. Mm-hmm. But nines and twos are very similar in that way in that we yeah. repress the hell out of our emotions. And while we're talking about defense mechanisms for nines, it's dissociation. Mm-hmm. So if you're practicing throughout your life, you know, especially like moments when you're not self-aware, if you're going through life, you know, 24 seven kind of just dissociating from your feelings, the reality is you're human. So you need to let them out somehow. So it actually mm-hmm. makes sense that like you created this, this outlet to, to just weep and let it all out because mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Newsflash, you're human. So yeah, not crazy. Yeah. Makes sense. But, but weird, weird for sure. And that's okay. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't mind that. Well, yeah, <laughs> deeply say, bizarre. Think, <laughs> a little bit, but I mean that's part of. I don't know. I feel like that's part of what's so beautiful about the enneagram is that you can have one nine and another nine that have these completely different ways that they mm-hmm. express their nineness or whatever their number is, and it's like the core motivations are the same. Like for me, my wife is a nine. So many of the things you mentioned, I'm like, I just have to take a step back and be like, yep, okay, there it is. Mm -hmm. And this is one where it's like, it's a different, it's a different spin on it. But again, my wife very often is always going to the worst possible end game. But at the same time, it's more a fear of that. And she'll just sit there and I'll notice like, wait a second, she's not, she's in her head right now. And I have to get her out of it. And she's more like distraught by this. So it's not necessarily bringing it on intentionally. But it is the same avenue that I think there's something intrinsically with nines that there's this feeling of needing to take that to the end to say like, okay, I, I experience that. I understand that extreme emotion because it's needed because so often you're not experiencing those emotions and you're burying them and you're expressing others' thoughts. It's, it's just very interesting how much they can be the same flavor but <laughs> expressed very differently. Mm-hmm. And then that gets us into like, moving towards the six and like, okay, how, how can I be prepared for this? Like, yeah. Right. You know, potential exactly. horrible, horrible situation. Yeah. And the type six shows up for you in stress. Mm. So when you've done the appeasing, appeasing, the merging, yep. the merging, the going along to get along, eventually there's a breaking point. Right. And so when that stress comes, that's when you start to grab tools from six to help you. To yeah. help you maintain the peace that that mm-hmm. nine is no longer working. That the nine ways of maintaining peace and inner and outer stability are no longer working. So now you got to grab tools from other types. And the first one you grab from then is is absolutely that stress number, which is six, mm-hmm. which is like the yep. worst case scenario and like the tragic yep. thinking and mm-hmm. all that. So you're absolutely correct. So as we transition a little bit here, Isaac and Lincoln, I would love to talk about your art and specifically your art of music performing, music composition, music collaboration, all the things that kind of go together with that and the intersection of that with your Enneagram type. I think Scott and I are super Mm -hmm. fascinated about applying the Enneagram in practical ways, not just talking about it kind of theoretically. And so one of the ways that we can do that is by talking about specific topics and and seeing how your type colors the way that you interact with that Mm -hmm. topic. What has been some of the biggest challenges for you guys in composing? For me... As a nine, I definitely feel that my one wing comes out strong whenever I'm writing music. And I think I can get really, really analytical. Hmm. Uh, and I don't get like super judgmental necessarily of like of of what I'm doing. 
I am like hypercritical, but I have this picture perfect like version in my head of the idea, whether it be like a lyric or an arrangement or something like that. And I get tunnel vision big time. And I don't know, maybe you can enlighten me if this has anything to do with being a nine, but I, whenever I'm writing, I will often, and this is, I think this is in stark contrast to Lincoln. Whenever I get an idea, say at like eight in the morning, no, no, that's a joke. Maybe let's say 10 a.m. <laughs> I'm not having any ideas at eight in the morning. Accurate. Say like, it, like if I have an idea in the morning and I sit down on my couch to start working on the idea, I will not move the entire day. Mm. I will I will beat that idea to death until I get it to where like I I want it to be. Or in, sometimes it's just until I get it to a place. Mm. Whether or not like that place is actually good or yeah. or not. I just I get I get tunnel vision, I get obsessive. It is all I can think about. And then this so funny, like I just know this would drive like Lincoln, this would drive you crazy. But like I am like there have been drives that I've taken, like road trips, like four hour long road trips Mm -hmm. where previously, like right before I left, I would record four or five chords, just some sort of progression. And I will play that progression on my phone or like in my car through like a voice memo. It sounds terrible. The entire car ride, four or five hours, just on repeat and all i'm doing is just like going through ideas trying like in real time like trying like this word okay maybe this word just relentless but then what ends up happening is one of the positives is that when i get to a point that i'm like ooh i like that i'm very confident in it because i've literally tried everything yeah mm-hmm. and i can get there in what appears to be like a relatively short amount of time but in reality, it took yeah. all day long. And it's the only thing I did. I didn't eat. You know, all of a sudden I'm starving and I have to pee really bad. You know, so it's like, ah, I haven't taken care of myself today. I, yeah. you know, I've just been like in one space. Yeah. I've just been working. I've been like writing. Like the amount of times that like I'm, we're on the road and like I'll kind of like start to do something and Lincoln and Bailey just go like work, 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 work. Work, 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 work. Just like all I do is just like I get into this like tunnel vision. Well, because like, we, just... we we pull into a gas station and you'll just like sit on your laptop. Exactly. And, like, yeah. Everyone else will have gotten out of the car and like we've all peed and like refilled the van and we're ready to go. And he's like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I do that. That's a small scale, but I do that yeah. in every aspect of the work. I say I never tire of it. But in, in reality, what's happening is I haven't eaten in hours. And so I am weak. Like I don't yeah. have, I have not taken care of myself. I'm not working very efficiently. The ideas that I'm having at this point at 2 a.m. are not as good mm-hmm. as if I would just call it quits and go to sleep and wake up the next morning. But I'm relentless and I obsess yeah. over it and I will not stop until I get somewhere. Yeah. I don't know if that has anything to do with the nine or not. No. Please but Isaac me. does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I would ask, maybe this has happened in situations in the past where you've had these thoughts or these moments, and then it does get cut short because there's something that you need to get to. You're not allowed to just zone in. Mm-hmm. What are your feelings in those moments? Like, What is the angst that you have when that happens? Hmm, good question. Believe it or not, I'm not paying attention. 
<laughs> in those moments to yeah. the way I'm feeling. Yeah. Can I comment on your piece? Yes. Yeah. So this is a really funny part of our story. For years, Isaac and I lived in the same apartment complex and he and his wife, Ella, lived in the apartment directly above us. And so to his point, I could hear him working on the music that he was writing. And there would be like a period of four days where he would play, he would do exactly what he's describing and he would play nothing but eight measures of the same song that he's kind of like trying to work out for days at a time. It was amazing to witness and but it was also really funny because he would like text me and be like hey, i got a new song i want you i want to share with you and i was like oh it's fine i already have a chart for it <laughs> I've, been, I've been i've been listening to you do it for uh-huh. days <laughs> yep. but like you absolutely kind of like get sucked into this alternate universe mm-hmm. when you create and, and i know that it's not necessarily something that you do on purpose. It's just like how you're wired and how you make stuff. Mm-hmm. But you always like return from that alternate dimension with something really beautiful. You kind of like consent to being sucked into it. And then you spend the mm-hmm. time that you are there like very productively and you emerge with something really special, like a real treasure that has some revelatory information for the rest of yeah. us. And so it's, it's very much time well spent. Obviously, you know, it does cost you something like in some way, yeah. mm-hmm. like if you spend a whole day doing that and then you forget to you yeah. know, feed yourself and <laughs> stuff. But like, it is a very different process mm-hmm. from like how I usually do these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it yields good results. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think to answer your, your question, Scott, yeah. I feel like I have maybe like a limited reserve of energy. I, I have a threshold and like once I hit that threshold, I'm done for the day. Yeah. Nines have the least amount of energy of every type. Oh, yeah. And I totally feel that. And I think for me, it's less in like daily 24-hour spurts. It's more like seasonal for me. Yeah. Mm. And really, whenever I find myself in the season of like, it's usually right when we get home from tour, that I'm just like, I am so unproductive. Mm. And I'm disheveled. I don't shower. I don't shave. I don't clean anything. Like the dishes pile up, the laundry piles up. I'm re-wearing the same underwear, just like... You don't murder your family and your mind. I'm just like doing all these things. And it takes me like weeks mm. to get on my feet again. And then we leave. And then we go on tour again. Mm. Such is the life. But <laughs> I feel like whenever I get into the zone, yeah. one of the reasons that I don't want to get out of it is because I'm like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I finally like got here. Mm. Yep. You were really good at that. And if I like, if I get pulled out of it, I don't know when the next time is going to be. You know, like I might have a whole week or two of I got nothing to give anymore. So I think once I'm there, I want to stay there. Mm. Yep. Because I know it's rare. It's hmm. like that. I don't know which one of Newton's laws it is, but an object in motion stays in motion. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I for, think it's his 15th. Not- <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. It's definitely one of the first three, but we'll go with 15th. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the only three. Anyway, there's, it's like this thing with, with nines that I've, heard countless nines express it's this idea of inertia getting Mm -hmm. that object going is where all the work is once it's going it's going (laughs) right oh (laughs) yeah absolutely getting it going is is the hardest part and Mm -hmm. and i would wonder and it at least to me as an outside observer makes sense that once it's moving for you to go off the track before it gets to its completion like that goes completely against the idea of inner peace like the inner peace that you're striving for has this end goal in mind so once it's rolling Mm -hmm. 
if it gets thrown off the track, it's broken and I don't know how to get it back on because right. it's not going to happen all the time. So it's like, I need to get this to completion or else I'm not going to be at peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Lincoln, what about you with that whole process of composing and performing and such? Yeah, it's, it is really, really different for me. I have a hard time consenting to stay in that space as long as Isaac is able to, like for those long and uninterrupted periods. I think because it's easy for me to get distracted, whether I am hungry or like there's something else that needs my attention. And it's easy for me to get pulled away from that. When like Mm. probably 98% of the things that take me away from writing can wait. But I think I lie to myself and, and allow myself to be pulled away very frequently. What Isaac was saying isn't necessarily a hard and fast rule. I know that there are there are like certain tunes in his catalog that have, have taken some time. But generally, like you do crank out stuff like pretty prolifically, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I think for me, songs usually either take weeks or years. It's not days or months. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. relatively quick or it's forever. <laughs> One similarity that Isaac and I do share is that I think we are both really critical of the work that we each generate ourselves, like first and foremost. And I I definitely get impatient with something if it isn't brilliant the first time it comes out. Like if this really thought-provoking idea isn't fully formed, like the first time it tries to manifest through me, I, I get impatient with it and... And so I think like sometimes I think I I find distractions to alleviate that frustration when like, it's funny because we talk to so many other people about just the process and the craft of songwriting. Mm. And, you know, you as a songwriter, like, you know, this, like, it's kind of this long, slow, obedient work of showing up to the thing like day after day. Yes. And it's like, yeah, I don't have a guarantee that the two hours that I'm going to spend looking at this is going to even yield one line of a lyric but like i just need to show up and try and see if it's there yes and like that's advice i know to give but it's so hard for me to follow (laughs) yeah and very often the music that i write it either comes relatively quickly or it takes a long time Mm. like i'm thinking about the record that we made last year that we're about to release this summer and there's a blend of of tunes on there that i wrote like relatively quickly and then some of them that are years old and it's funny, I think we have a funny relationship with deadlines. Like sometimes we're, we're like pretty precious about the songs that we're writing and it takes a minute. And then every once in a while, we'll, we'll kind of like have to pivot and, you know, create, create music to serve kind of as a stopgap between like larger projects. That kind of happened this fall, like we, or this past fall, we, we like made this record and then just ran into all of these production and release delays and we finally have a release date for this year, which we're very excited about. Woo-hoo. But we, once we realized that like the record wasn't coming out last year, we were like, oh, mm. it's been a while since we've released original music. We should probably put something out. And that was like largely at the suggestion of our manager. And we were like, yeah, you're probably right. And so over, I think like over a period of like two or three weeks, we got back from a tour and we both like just cranked out a song really fast mm. and then like got in the studio and tracked them. Like we, the two of us got together, made a preliminary arrangement and then got together with the rest of the band and then just like did it. It's interesting when, when there's kind of this, this hard cutoff time, it's like, okay, let's put it in gear and see, mm. 
what emerges. And maybe it's a sort of like marriage of need and obedience and service. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, we're under the gun and we've done this before and let's see what we can dive down and retrieve from the bottom and bring to the surface. And it's not a science by any stretch of the imagination. I think there are very concrete things we do to set ourselves up to succeed when we come to the writing table, but but it still feels like very elusive and mystical every time we sit down to do it. And I, I feel like I'm starting over every time I try to write something. That is so relatable. And I feel like that's something that I hear a lot of composers say. Creators, period. Visionaries. (laughs) This guy. You're a monster. (laughs) You're a monster. (laughs) All right, friends. We are going to pause this interview here because the episode was quite long. It was just so delightful. And they have so much wisdom to share with you guys. So... We're going to split this into two episodes. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, give us stars, likes. We appreciate you guys. And tune in next week for the other half of this episode. Be well, friends. Peace.